We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The Rock Pile Report with Buffalo Bills season ticket holder, Drew Gear. Be aggressive. You have literally nothing to lose. You're a borderline football team. If I don't keep laughing about this stuff, my teeth are going to turn around and devour my brain. The Bills make me want to... Allen steps. Allen trying to run. Oh, he got clobbered. Called a helmet to helmet hit on Jonathan Jones. It's a good call by the officials. But Allen is down. There's no, there's no room in football for that. Um, it's a shame to see a player like Josh or any player for that matter go down with a hit like that. Welcome everybody to another edition of the Rock Pal Report podcast. I am your host, Bill Season Ticket Holder Drew here. That's my producer Chris Krueger, and that's Ian Eagle and Dan Fouts from CBS Sports, and Sean McDermott from BuffaloBills.com, his post-game presser. Guys, I gotta tell you, I'm, I'm not really sure what happened or what's happening right now. We are two days removed from the Bills' latest foray against the New England Patriots, and I gotta say, life is still kind of rough over here. I mean, I clearly haven't gotten my voice back yet from being at the stadium. Disgruntled. Physically, I'm all kinds of beat up. I am sunburned. I got a pulled, maybe even partially torn tricep. The partially sprained thumb from drumming on the seats. I got a crick in my neck from passing out awkwardly on the couch on Sunday night. At, <laughs> at this point, if you were to take my life at this point, throw in some indecent exposure charges and a number four jersey, you could call me the Brett Favre of podcasting. I'm just all beat up out here. Taking blows to the skull, to the liver, to my sanity. Ugh. Chris, how are you coping with our latest loss in the New England Patriots? I'm doing fine. I called it. I know you're all you're, you're physically hurt, the bicep, the sunburn. There's only one way to fix that, dude. Get you this night. Peach Bellini Seagrams, because you picked the Bills to win. I will hand that to you, sir. You drink that delicious. That looks like that looks like you took a paintbrush, dipped it in orange paint, and then. Put it in water, and that's the water that you have to drink. Folks, <laughs> we kind of anticipated that this was coming. And so in hopes of delivering an entertaining show, we brought back probably one of our best guests of the season so far. 
New York Upstate's Matt Perino in studio with us tonight. How are you doing tonight, man? I'm good. It, there's only been five game, five games, five weeks, four weeks, four weeks. Okay, four so games. not a really big pool of uh, guests. So I feel so. Thank you. I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Listen, at this point, the idea here is that we need somebody in studio with us as we go over these things to help kind of make up for my lack of composure, lack of a voice, the sanity, the the, the liver damage. I mean, Matt. We have you here tonight to hopefully bring some balance to what's to the conversation that we're about to have. So, yeah, I think first of all, there's been a little bit of an overreaction. Oh, an overreaction. An overreaction. I'll tell you this: there is a lot to there is a lot to overreact to, though. And I guess that's where we have to start all of this with our Week Four recap: the Patriots sixteen, the Buffalo Bills ten. And this Peach Bellini Seagrams. Chris, why don't you run down this week's stats of the game? Oh, it's a beautiful thing. Josh Allen, 13 to 28, 46%, 153 yards, three picks, four sacks, 24 passer rating. Uh, didn't complete a pass of, uh, was it a pass of 30 plus, uh, in 2019. Brady, 18 to 30. This is the best stat line. 18 to, 18 to 39, 46%, 150 yards, one pick. 45.9 rating. Ugh. You can take the rest because that's all. That I was can... disgusting, by the way. That's the <laughs> grossest thing. One of the grossest things I've ever seen. You just sh- shock, or not shock, I mean, pounding a, a wine cooler. That was gross. <laughs> you know what's grosser than that is ever picking the New England Patriots to beat the Buffalo Bills. I will take chugging a wine cooler over that any day of the week. The rest of the statistics. Trey Edmonds, 11 tackles, 7 solo, 2 tackles for a loss, and 1 pass defense. Zay Jones, 8 targets, 2 catches for 4 yards, 1 muffed pass, resulting in an INT in the end zone. Second half play calling. 13 passes from Josh Allen versus 5 runs called. 1 touchdown, 1 punt after a sack, and 4 first downs. Frank Gore, 6.4 yards per carry. Tom Brady's passing, 17 of 18 receptions came less than 8 yards from the line of scrimmage. The New England offense as a whole, 11 of 13 possessions with 1 or 0 first downs. Patriots running back James White, 10 targets, 8 receptions, 80% completion percentage, 57 yards and 3 first downs. Every other Patriots receiver, 24 targets, 10 catches, 93 yards and 2 first downs. And then the Bills offense, 10 points, 375 total yards. The Patriots offense, 9 points, 224 total yards. Now, Mr. Perino, as you touched on as we kicked this segment off, there's been a lot of overreaction out there in reference to what's going on with the Buffalo Bills. And I think a lot of it is probably centered around the offense. And I think that that's a good place to start. We're centered around you. <laughs> Listen, that's what I do, okay? Game day Sunday, we got to see, since it was the Bills' first loss, it was a Patriots game, it was the perfect storm. I, To your point, Chris, I need to stay off Twitter sometimes. But yeah. I'm not going to, and you can't make me. And so with that said, we got to watch the first installment of Drew Gear's angry tweets during a Bills game, where our followers, you can actively watch it hour over hour, increase and decrease by about 20 to 30 people at a time. <laughs> Do I care? Absolutely not. 
when you look at the offense, I see this in a couple different. There's a couple different things that I took away from this, and I'm hoping that you can walk walk me through this, Matt. First of all, Brian Dable, his game plan worked. I have no complaints. In my mind, his stock has rebounded from. Obviously, I've been critical of him the last few weeks, but I think that what we were doing on offense worked, considering the defense that we were going up against. I mean, even though you look at the low passing numbers, which to your point, I think that's probably where a lot of the overreaction is coming from. Frank Gore had his first 100-yard rushing game of the season. Four players, you had Dawson Knox, you had TJ Yeldon, uh, John Brown, and Cole Beasley with at least one catch of 20 or more yards. Yeldon, that, that's a guy. He was effective for the first time all season in the passing attack. And you look at Knox, three of three for 58 yards. The production from our pass catchers was there, even if the overall passing numbers didn't look great on paper. What do you think about that in terms of how Dable schemed up this attack this week? Yeah, I. your point that Brian Dable stock rebounded, I, if I was a Bills fan, I'd be thrilled with Brian Dable through three weeks because if you go back and watch all 15 games of Josh Allen's career, and you look at some of the moments and struggles and periods of time where he was just simply bad, to get that guy plus 60% in three consecutive games to start this season, I put some of that on Brian Dable and his success at putting him in a position to be successful. Now, I think what happened on Sunday was Josh Allen came out and he got himself rattled a little bit. You go and watch that first series, each time he went back to throw the ball, he was anticipating that pass rush before it even came. Throwing throughout the game, throwing off of his back leg, just looking absolutely uncomfortable. Fundamentals with Sean McDermott over and over again, bangs the drum. They weren't there. He forgot everything that they've been spending the entire summer drilling into his head. And you go to the first play of the game, the, the batted ball. Then the next ball to Cole Beasley that was five yards left of him. It just, to me, it's almost like Josh Allen, who's next week going to, or his next game, I should say, is going to be a 16th, he's still basically a rookie. He wasn't ready for the moment, and it was a big moment. It was a lot different than last year when they went to New England as the crappy Bills that had went, won five games, and nobody was expecting them to do anything, and he was fine in that game fine, he was, a, he was okay, to now where the entire country had their eyes on this game, the battle versus Tom Brady, every, all the pressure was on him, and you saw that from the very get-go, and I thought you could take something from, if you want, if you want the positives, that third quarter drive when he went six for six and let a touchdown drive, which by the way, no team, including Ben Roethlisberger, a future Hall of Famer, he wasn't even able to, to drive... Pittsburgh once for a touchdown. Okay, so let's talk about that. Right there, there's something that I look at and I say, Brian Dable, okay, I've motherfucked you for three straight weeks now because you couldn't find a third quarter point. That happens by accident in the NFL. A team somehow finds its way into kicking a 55-yard field goal. The f Zero points in three consecutive third quarters is embarrassing. If you're a coordinator coming out of halftime, knowing you have that time to script a drive, or to sit down with your playmakers and talk about what you want to do. For the first time all season, you saw them go into the half somewhat in disarray on offense. 
You know, they shook off the missed field goal and found a way to come out firing. March down the field and get that touchdown. The plays that he was designing, I liked what they were doing a lot using Dawson Knox. Using Dawson Knox to sometimes clear linebackers out of the box. To clear lanes for guys like Cole Beasley, guys like John Brown and shit. The play design. And I know that I I go back in my head to coordinators like Rick Dennison, who on third down was scheming up routes where all three wide receivers wound up in the same goddamn spot. All of them. With no idea who... I will say one thing on Dable. Well, we've come a long way since then. Watching this game play out and watching where the receivers were and watching the spacing and the play design, you can't help but be a little bit encouraged by that. Mm -hmm. I think there were a few plays in this game, though, that if you go back and watch the tape a little bit, which I've kind of pieced through the last couple days, there were plays when there was three wide receivers running downfield routes where Josh Allen didn't have any options where he was throwing the ball, like that one ball to John mm-hmm. Brown at the goal line, where he basically just kind of like slung back and just wung it a little bit down the field. There was no options underneath. I mean, you have to, when you're facing that kind of pass rush, this is the number one uh, ranked uh, pass rush team in the NFL. Mm-hmm. They're getting after the quarterback <laughs> at a historic rate. And by the way, I brought uh, my buddy here, and you can explain that in a second, but he had a he had an interesting point about this before the game or before we started in that that this Patriots defense might not be as good as I'm billing them to be. But I'll tell you right now, I watched the first three weeks and then I watched what happened on Sunday. And this New England Patriots defense is special. That secondary is absolutely filthy, and they were disguising everything all day. They, they were, and I understand that. So your friend here, why don't you introduce yourself? Well, uh, my name is Kerry Byron. Matt brought with brought me over here tonight probably because he didn't think he could do this on his own. <laughs> I, I've heard that he had a lot of fans the first time he came on. He was a little bit intimidated, so maybe he's the Josh Allen of this program. Bright lights are on. Everyone's watching, and he needs a little bit of the support. So what is it? So, so what's your take on this? He says you have an opinion on this topic. You know, I do. I, I didn't realize until we started up the game that New England was ranked number one in every facet of the defense, but does it count when you're playing Miami in week one? That was a team that had already shipped off so many of its players, was not prepared for an NFL game. Of course you're going to put up monster stats. Mm-hmm. So they're playing almost with a handicap. Okay. So when it relates to this game, though, and you get to see it up close and personal, and you see the way now, it's easy to try to take things away from them. And I know because I, I did the same thing last week. When you see it playing out in front of you, it's a whole different animal. And you're reminded of the fact that no matter who they're playing against, Bill Belichick is the architect of some of the best defenses with some of, I don't want to say worst personnel, but this is the guy who took the K-Gun offense and he was the guy who figured out a way around it in the Super Bowl on the fly. He said, hey, how am I going to, I'm going to find an unorthodox way to bring this down. He's played some of the best offenses in football and found a way to slow them down with underwhelming personnel, and you saw it again this week. Missing Donta Hightower, okay, that, that was huge because he is, as an Alabama fan, I watched the kid progress through college and I realized he's going to be a special player because as a linebacker, he can pass rush, he can cover, he can play the run. He ends up in a Patriots uniform, and he's done all of that and then some to them. Not having him in this game, I assumed that coverage would, would be softer in terms of what they were going to try to mix and match us with. And again, you didn't see a whole lot. I mean, I talked about the numbers that our players individually put up, but it was all contained. 
There was nothing working for us. So when I think about this, and to your point, now Matt, you want to you want to talk about Josh Allen. That's if we're recapping the offensive performance. You look at what he did. I think the thing that stands out to me is the most damning. There's two of them. First of all, cannot find a deep ball. The man cannot find a deep ball this season. He has yet to connect on a single pass of more than 30 yards through the air. And then, even though I get it, his pocket pocket integrity, not great. His decision-making under pressure was bad. On third down, when you're expected to throw the football, Okay? You're not fooling the defense on third and five, third and six. I mean, unless you're, what, uh, Mike Malarkey, who used to love running a fucking draw on, ah, it's third and nine, we're going to surprise him. Or unless you're Baker Mayfield and Freddie yeah, Kitchens. fourth and nine, run a draw. <laughs> unless you're them, everybody knows that you're going to throw the football. We were two for 13 on third down with two of Josh Allen's interceptions coming on third down. In, in spaces where the defense knew that we had no choice but to throw. To your point, they did a very good job of disguising a lot of their coverages and forcing Josh Allen to make legitimate reads on what they were doing while also understanding that simulated pressure. I think, I think that was one of my takeaways, is watching the simulated pressure where there wasn't a blitzer in the pocket yet. There wasn't somebody in his face yet, but Allen would start to move. And he would start to move and he would start to roll out or he would just get happy feet and then try to step up into pressure. He did a great job of confusing Josh Allen and it stood out on third down. That's one of the most damning things because you need a quarterback who can, especially in a close game, that's where things matter. Because if you can't keep the Patriots offense on the sideline, you're not going to win 90% of the games that you play against him. So... With that said, from your perspective, is there any fixing this, or are we getting a look at who Josh Allen just may be? Maybe this is just the devil we have to live with? My question is on, on this question that you're bringing up, because it's being asked a lot right now in, mm-hmm. this, you know, yep. in Western New York. I just don't understand how you could take and project a career based off of one game against the defense in this league. That's fair. And, and that's and you know what? And to your point, there have been a lot of just there's a lot of insanity out there right now. People, right. T- I saw on Facebook this Uncle Pete, fucking Uncle Pete from softball, is all over Facebook talking about ah, oh, this is the best thing that could have happened to the Bills, Josh Allen being out. Now they're gonna realize that Matt Barkley is the savior. What are we talking about? We're talking about Matt Barkley. Matt Barkley for what? What? Seventeen weeks of NFL football? You people are out of your fucking minds. Listen, there's there's a lot of things to take away from Sunday that are concerning. I, I'm not I'm not trying to sugar or like paint this with like uh, bright colors no, and everything's okay. Am I. I'm not I'm not I'm not saying that. There's a lot of things like you could see it in Brian Dable's face on the sideline when he threw that second interception and he blew him up. There's things that he's doing that they're going over and over again with him. Stop making these dumb decisions. Stop throwing the ball in in these situations where there's. There's almost a guarantee that something bad is going to happen if you decide to throw the ball the way that you're doing it. So there's bad things that are happening, but... It's that Wyoming hero ball that he yes. played. And He's we, trying to, to carry it every play. And I'll Throw it this, away. Live if, to see another day. But I'll say this. If there's anything I can blame for that, that leads me to the last takeaway that I have in terms of the offensive performance. Because no, it wasn't great. Here's what I want to know. Our offensive line, okay? 
good investments, but I have yet to see it pay any kind of dividends. Okay? Our offensive numbers as a whole are rebounding from what they were last year. Okay? We've reached the quarter pole of the season. I think we're the fifth-ranked rushing team in football, a year removed from being one of the worst. So you're better in that aspect in terms of your offensive line play and your execution. But how much of that, how much of that do you attribute to, hey, we improved our personnel in the backfield, and our quarterback is, is in his second year. He's learning. He's learning how to take what's given to him. The reason I ask that question is because when I watch what Josh Allen is dealing with, and yes, the simulated pressure is a staple of what Bill, Brian, Jesus Christ, Bill Belichick does on a regular basis to confuse young quarterbacks. Only the best, Peyton Manning, you know, your Aaron Rodgers, or just super athletic guys. Like uh, you know, I'm thinking about the teams that have beaten Bill Belichick over the last few years, which aren't many. Eli Manning. Well, Jesus Christ! Oh, you're forgetting that one. Uh, yeah, I don't. He's if anything, he's the outlier for all this. He's that he's that red herring that makes all of your statistical analysis just it just shits all over all of it. But with that said, they all kind of have this trait where under pressure and under they're good at figuring out simulated pressure, and when actual pressure comes their way, they're quick decision makers who can get the ball out. At this point in his development, Josh Allen may not be that guy. But one of the things that feeds into that is having guys who were touted as pass protectors. You brought them in here to help Josh Allen feel more comfortable in the pocket so that he could stand tall under that pressure and deliver the football. And instead, to this point in the season, Josh Allen is the second most pressured quarterback in the NFL. Exactly where he ended last season, behind an offensive line that was making peanuts. They've brought in new faces, and Sunday there was a lot of sloppy play by a lot of them. I mean, Mitch Morse, he was giving up. Now, the defensive tackles for the Patriots, they're not world beaters. They're just not. But that's not how the Patriots' defense is designed. They're designed to work as, I don't know what you want to call it. I think, the, I, 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 I think my favorite analogy I've heard for them is the Spartan phalanx. Any one of them, on their own, probably fails in a one-on-one rep with another player on the other team. Maybe not all of them, but at least half. But together, with Bill Belichick's scheme and the way that they play, the, the sum of the whole is better than its parts. And they can do a lot of crazy things. And with that said, their defensive tackles are not overly talented. Mitch Morse had multiple pressures and two holding penalties because of what was, you know what I mean? Because of what was being thrown at him by the defense. Lee Smith... Three penalties. 20 total yards worth of penalties. Four. Jesus Christ, did I miss one? He had four. He had four penalties. Jesus Christ. You look at this stuff and you're like, okay, these are the guys. Quentin Spain actually looked pretty good. The Cody Ford experiment, I still don't understand what's happening with this. I, I, I don't get it. Maybe you can enlighten me. That's the root of the problem right now for okay, this offensive it, line. Because Mitch Morris, first of all, I'll say this. You look at all of those free agent signings, nobody's making more money on that offense right now than Mitch Morris, and he's not getting the job done. That's number one. He was touted as a pass blocker, and Thank he's you. doing a shitty job of it. So, so listen, he missed the whole summer. Mm-hmm. So remember, this, he's, this is like his fourth preseason game, kind of like, you know what I mean? Obviously, he's started and played in all four games, so it's a little different. But, it, you know, it's a slow process. I get it. He's going up against a good defense. I'll give him a, I'll give him a pass on that. But he has to be, improve. For the money that they're paying him, he's going to have to improve. Cody Ford right now, he's a liability in pass protection. He's a mauler in the run game. And to your point, Feliciano, Quentin Spain, Deion Dawkins made a couple really nice blocks in the run game on Sunday. And I think that that's where he's 
maybe at his best, which makes me kind of think maybe, hey, look, why don't we shoot him back over to the right side, put Ty Inseki at left tackle, and move Cody Ford inside, and then Feliciano becomes your number one depth piece. Because guess what? You're going to need depth at this position. I mean, Spencer Long isn't even starting, and he missed last week because he got injured in practice. Practice. We're talking about practice here. People are getting hurt. Ultimately, when I watch these guys play, my t- week in and week out, but especially this weekend, again, Josh Allen came into this game the second most pressured quarterback in the NFL and leaves it with four sacks. Lord knows how... Well, there was four, five sacks total gotcha, by the defense. Gotcha, yeah, yeah. Four sacks on Josh Allen. An untold number of pressures that luckily his athleticism let him at least get the ball away. We've invested a lot in terms of draft capital and in terms of just cash into this offensive line. I don't want to see... The, I guess I, I feel like maybe we invested this money and expected to see more from them. So in your professional opinion, maybe my expectations were too high. Does this line still need time to gel? or Because I know everyone is... Oh, God. God, I sound like I'm hitting puberty right now. This is terrible. Would you rather us do what the Jets did and spent that stuff on money on the outside? No. And be no, no, 0-3? No. I think they went about it the right way. But so I guess this is the question every pragmatic fan. Instead of calling WGR and screaming about how the sky is falling, the question needs to be, the offensive line, you're better, you're better rushing the ball than you were last year, and it's kept you in football games. It kept us in this one, you know? At the same time, the thing that all of these guys were brought in here to do is to be pass protectors. And right now, it's not happening. So is this something that we just have to learn to live with? Or is there an expectation that they're going to gel as the season goes on because we've shuffled so many new faces in and out? I will say, with my comments on Mitch and and Cody being what they were, there were plays on Sunday where Josh Allen had upwards of five seconds to throw the ball, and the coverage was just so good downfield, nobody got open. I think that right now, one of the big things going into the season that I had predicted as being a uh, matchup problem for opposing defenses is John Brown and Robert Foster on the field at the same time. That hasn't materialized through four games. And obviously, he missed last week. Yes. But that, to me, I almost feel like Zay Jones and Cole Beasley should have some type of rotation in the slot, and Robert Foster should be your wide receiver. He should be that guy that's in with John Brown every week. Because I think he proved last year for the most part, that he can do everything that John Brown's doing in terms of down-the-field threat, can work in that intermediate uh, area as well. It's been a slow start for him. I think the biggest problem for Zay, and I know we'll probably talk about him, and Robert, is that when you bring in new alphas into the room, when you that was your roles last year. They were number one and number two. Now Cole and John are number one and number two. So Zay and Robert has, have had to kind of go back to the drawing board and figure it out. And when I ask Brian and Sean about it, they consistently say everybody has a role to play and Zay Jones is willing to play his his role. But if your role is completely different than what you were able to figure out last season as a second-year wide receiver going into your third year, I, I just think that there's too much, um, I don't know, I don't, I don't think it's a great atmosphere for synergy when you're asking somebody to do something different and you're not even really putting them in a position to be successful. Zay Jones should not be running go routes. He is a possession receiver, and his best is work. He, look at the hands. Is he a possession receiver? No, I mean that's a good point. I mean he had fi- fifty-six receptions last year, and I think what a hundred targets. So oh. no, it's it's definitely. But I'm saying, in what he can do well, 
the last thing that I would have him doing is running go routes and trying to beat defenders. And by the way, you know, back to Josh Allen, there was a couple yesterday where if he puts the ball where it needs to be, Zay Jones is scoring six points. I was going to say, give, give Zay, Jones, Zay Jones some credit here. He actually beat the DBs more than once on those overthrows from Allen. Those, those options were there for him. If the ball is about five or six yards back and hits him in the hands, we're talking about Zay Jones with two touchdowns in that game. And this conversation is completely different. <laughs> I think you just, you just sparked something. I mean, I think he's going to fall off the chair. Oh. <laughs> All right, so we're, we're here just talking about what, what didn't work for the offense and what did. Now, one of the things that – because we've been bashing the offense here for about five, ten minutes. But realistically, when you look back at what we saw on Sunday, this is a team that has primarily come into Buffalo and clobbered the Buffalo Bills with their offense. And so – it always turned into a track meet, and it wasn't something that we could keep up with. And I think that, to your point, Matt, when we were talking off air before we started recording about the level of frustration from not just fans calling radio stations or on Twitter, but also some of the maybe older, more cynical members of the local media. There is this, there's some animosity about the way this played out because for once, you didn't have to get into a track meet and you just couldn't execute. Execution is, I guess, our takeaway here. You did a lot of nice things. You got multiple wide receivers downfield open, and you connected on plays that generated a ton of yards. You do that more consistently, and you're winning a lot of football games in the NFL, regardless of who the defense is. So with that said, I think that you have to take away from this. I know, I'm over here preaching that everybody needs to calm down. I wasn't thrilled with the offensive performance either. But when I look at what I saw and what they had to work around, the problems with the protection, the problems with separation from some of, our, some of the wide receivers, and some of the baiting, to your point, you're talking about Zay Jones getting separation and getting open, and then it results in interceptions. How much of that was actually Zay Jones being open, and how much of that was, hey, we know Josh Allen's rattled by the pressure, let's dial up a blitz, and then let's give him a gap in our zone coverage, but we're going to send a safety to buzz the underneath just in case we, just in case he underthrows that football again, because he's already done it once. Let's see if we can get him to throw this football and just anticipate the throw because that's what Bill Belichick is. He's pure concentrated evil, but he's a genius when it comes to how he game plans. And when you show him something like that early in the game, the way he underthrew that first interception, he's going to keep going back to the well. And that's the only thing I could think of yesterday as I was re-watching the football game far more sober than I was when I was sitting in the stands. But the doom and gloom that people are throwing on this game, they're missing one of the brightest things that I think you could take away from this, and that's the defense. Okay, The defense. There's a lot of anger, a lot of derision. For all the talk about the Patriots having the best defense, the Bills' defense balled out on Sunday to the point that Deion Sanders felt required not just once, but twice. He doubled down in the same hour on NFL Network about the Bills' defense. Man, first of all, they, they showed a lot. These guys, they came out to play. Sooner or later, guys, we just got to stop trying to find something wrong with the offense and give a defense some darn credit and give a defensive coordinator some credit. These guys came to play this game. They were not intimidated. They were not afraid. They came to play some darn football, and they – forced Tom Brady to have his worst outing of the season. He threw for under 50% completion percentage, and this was extraordinary. 
a lot of guys would try to copy it, but you can't copy it because you don't have the personnel. I said that already this show. I'm being repetitive. You don't have the personnel like the Buffalo Bills to copy what they did to this New England Patriots offense. You do not have it, so don't even try it. Zeon Sanders from NFL Network talking about the Bills defense or the Derek Carr of defenses. Just straight up, straight up elite. Derek Carr is not elite. Well, he I was. swear to God, one of these days I'm just going to put you in a headlock over this. He was for one season, but we have an elite defense. You want to talk about elite defensive performances. There's two statistics that I, that I kind of dug through this as I'm watching it. I mean, obviously we saw the result on the field. But there's two things that if you, I think, underscore, even for the layman who doesn't understand X's and O's and what different coverages are and what the Bills bring to the table in terms of talent, the Patriots' hallmark on offense is long drives that chew clock and end up in six points. That's it. That's what the Patriots do. When, Especially in crunch time, when a game matters or it's a close game, they will find a way to dink and dunk their way down the field get you off balance, set you up for big plays, chew a ton of clock, and then take the lead, which forces opposing teams to become desperate. On Sunday, eight of the Patriots' 12 drives, excluding the final series of kneel downs, took less than two minutes of game clock. And the Patriots' longest drive of the day, over eight minutes, ended with Micah Hyde's interception in the end zone. If that isn't... You're never going to pitch a perfect game against Tom Brady, but I don't know how you do a whole lot better than that. I mean, Matt, what, what, what's your opinion on this? So, my opinion on the defense as a whole? Just what you saw out of the defense on Sunday. They have superstars at every level of their defense. So, what's happening now is you have Tremaine Edmonds, who got cooked a little bit. Uh, by the Patriots in year one, uh, specifically that first game, I think, if, I'm, if my memory oh, serves me correct. Oh, he got embarrassed on Monday Night Football, yes. especially in coverage. They, what they did was they really antagonized him using running backs out of the backfield, which for a young player, it's, it can be hard, especially working out of a zone defense, because you don't know, based on how they've moved their pieces, it's easy to get confused. Is that guy my assignment? I don't know. I, I'm look, you're looking around, and you can't get caught looking against Bill Belichick. And Sunday, he did not. I can't even tell you guys how many hours that Tremaine Edmonds spent with Bob Babich. Just that we could see during training camp and practice where they're literally going through gap assignments and gap responsibilities and gap reactions. His awareness and his reaction time on, on Sunday was... Sublime. I mean, that dude, uh, Andy Benoit from mm-hmm. uh, Sports Illustrated, he's, he doesn't say a lot of good things about you know the Buffalo Bills. No! And most national people don't. He is all aboard the Tremaine Edmonds hype train. And rightfully so. He is playing at a Pro Bowl level, and he has a chance to be really special because of... You just watch... One thing I took away from watching the game back, because watching it live is different than watching it on TV. You're able to see it yes. different. He... He really is just this crazy, athletic, um, just offenses are going to have to be scared of him. Oh, absolutely. And game plan for him. I'm and glad, that's, that hasn't been here in a I'm long time. I'm glad that's where you started this because one of my big things is I don't know a ton about the secondary football teams. I make no bones about that. I'm not going to try to pretend that I'm some pundit that I'm not. I'm just a dude who drinks beer and I care about a handful of things about football. 
obviously the Bills. But when I'm watching in terms of X's and O's, my eyes are always glued on the front seven and the offensive line and the pocket. That's that's where my eyes go, and they don't leave. So wide receiver routes, things that they run, I don't really pay attention to. But in terms of nuance and picking that up, when I'm re-watching the game, I mean, look, to my earlier point, it takes games like this, I'm glad that I give it, we, we don't podcast after a game. We don't podcast the day after a game. I get 48 hours to sober up, calm down, rewatch the game, sometimes twice. One of the things that stood out to me was when I'm watching Sony Michelle, and I'm looking at his just, I want to say, he had a subpar day. If you're talking about a guy who was a first-round draft pick and is supposed to be a starter at the NFL level, a lot got made of Sony Michelle's terrible day. You go to any Patriots blog, and they're going to tell you, oh, no, the kid looks like he's terrible. You watch Tremaine Edmonds' game against them. I don't know if this is something a specific game plan for, but when you watched Edmonds and them, when the Patriots tried to run the ball, from year one to year two, he did pick the wrong gaps. He didn't really have a sound, I guess, a grasp of his gap assignments on a lot of plays last season. This year he's been on fire, and I think Sunday was probably his best game, especially when Sony Michelle was on the field. So you look at this, every single play, his two tackles for a loss, both when Sony Michelle was on the field. Those are plays that you're assuming the Patriots are going to run the ball, but you could watch Edmonds key on Michelle, even when it was a pass play. He'd take the right gap, and he was penetrating on every single one of these plays. I mean, it was rare to see him stop the line of scrimmage. He's causing havoc behind the line of scrimmage on running plays, even if he doesn't get the tackle. That's huge. You look at Sony Michelle. I keep talking about how his lack of performance, he averaged 3.7 yards before contact, zero after contact. Most of Tremaine Edmonds' solo tackles came against Sony Michelle. I, I can't describe to you what a jump he's made from year one to year two. He's... I mean, obviously, our secondary is the backbone of this defense. You'd agree with me on that, right? Yes. Okay. So then solid linebacker play is the thing that takes you over the top, and right now we're getting that out of Tremaine Edmonds. Yeah, I think that's about right. I think Dan Fouts actually gave him a lot of credit during the broadcast. There was one play in particular, I think it was Sonny Michelle's sweep out to the right side. He shrugs off a guard and cracks him in the backfield. Yep. It's exactly what we've been looking for from him since last year, and it looked like Ray Lewis. It looked like Ray Lewis disrupt, disrupting a run play in the back of the field, and I jumped out of, uh, off the couch. <laughs> it was it was. Yeah, just re- wait till he disrupts somebody at a bar. <laughs> wait, just hopefully this time Does he's he not wearing a white suit. I was going to say, hopefully he's not wearing a white suit. <laughs> so, couple things to remember: James Devlin was not on the field, and I said going into this game that was one of my keys to this game is that I thought, first of all, Shoney Michelle has not had a good season, and part of the reason is is that. James Devlin hasn't been there for two and a half weeks. And that offensive line, you know, I I didn't think the the six-round draft pick Ted Karras held up, uh, especially in the run game uh, for David Andrews. And people were, you know, Boston media guys were telling me, man, this guy's come in and played really well. I'm like, well, to Kerry's point, they haven't played anybody yet. So now they're going to play a defensive front that, you know, at both levels, at the the, the line and the linebacking core. Matt Milano, I mean – the guy seems like he's finally now back to 100%, flying around, making big plays. Uh, the secondary, man, Levi Wallace. I mean, pro football focus. I know people, you know, grades. I know. Uh. Listen, but here's, here's what I do like about pro football focus. It gives you like a baseline, right? Like 
they had Levi Wallace graded higher than Tredavious White mm-hmm. against the pass last week. Well, to be fair to Tredavious White, he doesn't get thrown at a whole heck of a lot. So there's not a lot to grade in Tredavious mm-hmm. White's game. But I thought Levi Wallace, who Tom Brady was specifically trying to pick on, to your point mm-hmm. about this secondary, Levi Wallace held up. And you have right now two of the top ten safeties in the NFL, in Micah Hyde and Jordan Poyer. And people gave me a little bit of heat for saying that Micah Hyde is a, a defensive player of the year candidate. Listen, I know that a safety is not going to win that award. It's been ten years oh, since yeah. that happened. But I'm saying the way that he's playing, his importance to this defense, Micah Hyde is having a unbelievable season. Oh, absolutely. And he continued it on Sunday. Now, I, again, I'm not a secondary guru, and I'm not going to pretend that I am. But I'm, as I'm watching the game on TV, I'm thinking to myself, there is not a lot of separation out there. None of the – even Julian Edelman, who that's his bread and butter. He's not a deep speed guy. He's not a size guy. He, that's not how he's going to beat you. He's not a catch radius guy. How many drops did Julian Edelman have in that game? It was the first time I think I've ever watched him drop the ball on easy plays. We were in his head. But this is the thing. The coverage is so tight, you do start to hold, you squeeze the trick a little, the stick a little bit, like in hockey, when guys can't score even though they're getting opportunities. He's squeezing the stick, and because of it, you, maybe he's Zay Jonesing himself. I don't know. But either way, I didn't see a whole lot of opportunity for him to make plays. And it was funny because I saw a tweet by Michael Girardi today. According to NFL Next Gen Stats, Gordon. Okay, everybody came into this game worried about the Josh Gordon. Uh, they don't need Antonio Brown. They've got Josh Gordon. Josh Gordon is going to be the guy that stretches the field and our secondary is going to get roasted underneath if our linebackers can't hold up in coverage. Josh Gordon averaged 2.1 yards of target separation, his lowest of the season. Josh Gordon's not a bad NFL wide receiver. So with that said, that's a hell of a job by our secondary. Just not giving anybody any breathing room. Because if you're going to play the Patriots, you have to, your front seven has to play them honest. You have to be able to keep guys in the box. You can't just sell out for the pass because we've seen games in the past. I've attended games. I was at the game where the Bills were winning 21-0 at halftime. And then they came out in the second half, ran an 11 personnel formation, and ran the ball down our throats because we sold out to stop the pass, and they got 300 yards rushing in a single half of football. That's, you have to play them honest, and our defense did a lights-out job across the board of not just playing them honest, but excelling at it. That might be true, but there's been a formula to beat Tom Brady that's been in existence and known in the NFL for over 10 years now, and that is getting a solid, that is getting a solid pass rush from your front four. If your defensive line can get that rush to open up your linebackers to be athletic and around the field, then you can shut the man down. And that's the thing I think, I think Chris, if you want to speak to this, when we were at the game on Sunday, one of the things that I think, I think you might have brought it up, you, we were consistently in the backfield. That's not, even though we didn't get any sacks, that's not something you're used to seeing against a Patriots team. I don't know what it's what it's called because you know I'm not the X's and O's football guy, but I did see a handful of plays where pre-snap my head is, what are the Bills doing? I thought you attack Brady in the A gap, and he had like everybody on the outside, and then the snap would happen, and everybody would collapse on the A gap, <laughs> and there would be there would be all kinds of commotion, you know, at the center and guard position. I don't I don't know what that's and called. You, and then what you'd see is Tom Brady. Specials. And then you'd see roll. You'd see Tom Brady rolling out of the pocket where he's either not accurate or he's throwing a three-yard pass. Yeah, and into our, the dirt because it, it's allowed out there. D- oh, yeah. So 
If there's another takeaway you could take from this, Tom Brady looks real human to me. For the first time in my life, I can say that. Our defense did a lot to make him look bad, but let's not let him off the hook for what was a pretty pedestrian. I'm going to take the opposite of Deion Sanders here. Yes, you you have to give credit to the Bills' defense, but I'm looking at Tom Brady. First of all, mechanics. Not just in the stands, but in rewatching that game. On a number of Brady's missed throws, like the miss on the very first drive to Philip Dorsett, that Julio Jones can't catch that football. Okay, I don't know who he's throwing to. Definitely not a 5'11 wide receiver. Or on the second possession, his very first pass. He's got his feet set. He had time to step into the throw. And he just sails it over his target's head. I, I don't know what's happening with Tom Brady. I don't want to trick myself into believing that this might actually be the start of the descent into old age. But then you see the lack of aggressiveness. Now that's not a Tom Brady trait. Tom Brady trait, he'll take what you give him because he's smart. But at the same time, this, in a game where your offense isn't producing a ton, he couldn't get anything going, and it almost seemed like he wasn't trying. I mean, when you look at where a lot of his passes fell, you, you, can, you guys out there listening to this can go look for yourself. NFL Next Gen Stats, look at Tom Brady's passing chart. He wasn't even trying to get anything downfield to try to push the ball to any of his wide receivers past 10 yards. I, I don't know if that's a... Is that a function of game planning, Chris? Or is it just Tom Brady? Maybe, maybe it's them realizing he doesn't have the arm he used to. Because, be I'll t- because I'll tell you this, last season teams dinked and dunked the balls. The ball. I mean, this season our tackling is so much more improved than that, and that's what's. I mean, that, that's been a staple of what our defense has done well for three weeks, and it's a big part of why we're three and zero. So, if you're a Patriots team that's known for its preparation and execution, why would you play directly into your opponent's strengths, unless you didn't really have a choice? I mean, Matt, do you think that their offense is genuinely speaking? That bad that they have to... 17 of 18 completions less than 8 yards from the line of scrimmage. Knowing that if you've done the preparation that the Patriots normally do, you know that that's not going to work because this Bills team swarms to the ball sound tackling. I mean, I don't think... I think they wanted to see it before they were going to believe it because I don't think they did a good job of that last season. And I think that James White has been a cheat code against the Bills for a few years now. And I think that the... The anticipation was that they'd be able to execute their screen game. There's another big thing going on here for this offense. They don't have Rob Gronkowski. Exactly. And I'll tell you right now. Everyone kept telling me, ah, it doesn't matter. It does Ah, matter. It doesn't matter because they'll just find somebody else. When you lose a Hall of Famer, when you lose a Hall of Famer, I don't care what you're doing. Listen, when they they signed Antonio Brown, I was like, okay, now now they're in business. I think that this offense could be pretty scary uh, because I think the tandem of of Brown and, and Josh Gordon... See, I don't know how good Josh Gordon is without um, help. No, oh, no. Do you know what I'm saying? Well, like he was good in he was good in Cleveland. He had that one year where I don't think he had a lot around him. But from everything I've seen since he's gotten to New England, I just don't know if you know Julian Edelman does some things. But I thought that Rob Gronkowski being a threat in that offense last year when when uh, Gordon was on the field. I thought that's where most of his success came. And I think that that's, that speaks to where this offense is at this point. With Brady and his career, with the, the injuries on the offensive line, the lack of talent around both around them, this is what's going to happen to Tom Brady when you go up against an elite defense. Now, is the, are the Bills the best defense that they'll see all season? Maybe. 
Maybe that's how this shakes out. Either way, watching him struggle and have to feed directly into the Bills' strength, that leaves me shrugging, wondering what what is the long-term outlook for Tom Brady at this point? How many years have we been having this conversation? I know! Don't get me say, everyone's going to say that, Look, but listen, I will sit here and chug beer and can convince myself that that's what it is. I'll sit here and <laughs> chug beer right next to you, but the reality is the man is, what, 72 years old? And yeah. he's still... He, he runs still, like it. He runs like it. But who cares? We've had this conversation every year for the last okay. two decades, and he always get he always gets one. But the most, whether it was Kansas City or any of the other teams, he gets one game every year where he looks well, human. And I'm pretty sure that was part of the deal he made with Satan <laughs> for this talent. You get one game every year where you look embarrassing. Well, I think the funniest part was the the red zone interception. One of the ugliest plays by Tom Brady in, I'm going to say, two or three years. Didn't look like a Brady throw. Okay. that's a Red zone turnovers are a crippler for any team, and the Patriots just don't make those kinds of mistakes. It's a rarity. On that interception, the guy sitting next to me flew in from Portugal to watch the game with us. Okay? From Portugal. And even the Portuguese guy, when that play happens, he looks at me, and to quote Hugo, says, that throw was amateurish. That's the kind of thing you expect from players two years in the NFL, not 20. And to hear Hyde talk about it after the game, he got the pick because Brady was staring his receiver down, which is a mistake veterans, especially future first ballot Hall of Famers, don't make when they're in their prime. Okay? Now... Honestly, it was a mistake for Hyde to say that out loud because that's officially billboard material for the rest of the season. Oh, fuck them and their billboard. They're going to win another Super Bowl, and the number one thing Tom Brady's going to say is, hey, remember when Micah Hyde said that I was staring down my receiver? Now, here's something that's been a hot topic, and I'm, I I want to talk about this because, and again, it's not sour grapes. I just want to address it because I feel like it has to be said. Controversial calls, non-calls, and replay decisions. How does that affect this football game? I understand it would be really easy for me to sit here and just complain about, quote-unquote, well, the officiating was bad. And I would sound like your average shitty radio caller who can't put context to something that they're seeing in front of them. But that doesn't mean that they're wrong, okay? I'm going to paint a picture for you. Now, you, sir, are an attorney. I am, that's true. So let me build a case for you, okay? This is like my opening. If I'm trying to set a scene and I'm trying to give my case credibility, let me paint a picture for you. According to the ringer's Zach Cram, from 2011 to 2017, the Patriots were called for 10% less penalty yardage than their opponents during the regular season, and a whopping 35% fewer than their opponents in the playoffs. When they were handed postseason penalties, 50% fewer of the 15-yard variety than anybody else that they played. And during that span from 2011 to 2017, the Patriots were flagged 24% fewer times than their opponent in games that were decided by eight or fewer points. Think about 2017. The Patriots were awarded a touchback on what was a completion to Austin Safarian Jenkins in New York City against the Jets. He fumbled after he broke the plane. They said it was a fumble into the end zone, awarded the Patriots the ball. They go on to win by a single score. A few weeks later, they survived the Steelers on another controversial call after the catch was made. The AFC Championship game that year, the Patriots won the penalty margin and inevitably the game. The Jaguars were assessed over 100 yards worth of penalties and New England tied its own record for the fewest times being flagged 
in a championship game, just one flag for 10 yards. Now, if that's not bad enough, and you don't you deal with a whole offseason of people bitching about that, remember this past season's AFC Championship game? Anybody out there? My father texted me after this and declared that he was done giving the NFL any of his money, that it was rigged horseshit, after a, a ridiculously questionable roughing the passer call was flagged for a light tap to the side, maybe side area of the helmet. Grazed him. Ah, roughing the passer. And they go on to win that football game. Or last week's game against Miami, where linebacker Raekwon McMillan was scolded by an official for placing a completely legal hit on Tom Brady. <laughs> okay. <sighs> for those of you out there who don't have a first ballot Hall of Famer on your roster, why aren't we afforded those same protections, those same penalty provisions? I mean, it's gotten to the point where members of the football team who know for a fact there's going to be a letter waiting for, a letter and a, essentially a voucher. A fine. Waiting in their locker for them still have the balls to speak out against them. I mean, this was like a hide after the game. That's the first thing that came out of my mouth on the sideline. If one of us did that to, to 12, um, we wouldn't have been in the game anymore. There's no way, there's no way we would have continued to play in that game. Um, even with the holding penalty that we had, offset penalty, no, there's no way, you know. And it's stuff like that, you know, we got to, obviously that's our quarterback. We, we ride and die with him. Um, to see that happen, you know, he, you know, Josh didn't slide, but at the end of the day, you can't, it doesn't matter if it's a running back, you can't head-to-head. Um, and so that's why I wanted the confirmation from you that it was, it was head-to-head because I didn't, I didn't get a good look at it. Um, but like I said, if that was, if that was their quarterback, there's no way that that would, uh, that you could continue playing. Micah Hyde, BuffaloBills.com postgame. Now you heard it in the open, Sean McDermott, talking about there's no place in football for this. Now you've got Micah Hyde. Both of them are going to get fined for this. And they don't give a fuck. People are done. People are ready to speak out about this, because especially someone in the division, because they see it all the time. Surprisingly, I'm not here to debate the hit with you. No, no, no. Instead, I want to point to something else far more egregious and far easier to flag if you wanted to and if you were interested in actually fairly officiating this football game. Chris, in front of you is the actual, from NFLofficiating.com, the rule summary for intentional grounding. Uh, it is a foul or for intentional grounding if a passer facing an imminent loss of yardage because of pressure from the defense throws a forward pass without a realistic chance of completion. A realistic chance of completion is defined as a pass that is thrown in the direction of and lands in the vicinity of an originally eligible receiver. That is the rule. Okay. So, early on in the game, okay, because I get it, every referee crew referees a game differently. You know, there's nuance from one crew to the next. Based on how much each crew loves New England. Okay. Early on in the game, (laughs) The, the Patriots are assessed a flag for intentional grounding. It's early on, the Bills were applying a lot of pressure. I re-watched it, watched it with the all-22 footage. The ball falls approximately five yards out in front of Julian Edelman. Yep. And they're flagged for intentional grounding. And then as the game goes on, all of a sudden that stopped being a penalty. Watching the tape, I found four different examples. Four! Of times when Tom Brady, in the face of pressure, threw the ball into the dirt while still being in the pocket. Especially in that fourth down, which has become highly controversial. 
and it wasn't assessed a flag. If you believe that this is the way a game should be officiated in the first quarter, and you've established that as a baseline for how you're going to ref a game, what changed other than the scoreboard and the fact that the game was close in your officiating from Jump Street to the end of the game? I, I asked the question into the ether. Well, I'll give you an answer. Uh, I was actually surprised at his first uh, intentional grounding call. I didn't think it was intentional grounding. You pointed it out yourself. He was about five feet away from Julian Edelman when he threw it. There was a weird hitch step where he kind of looked like he was trying to overthrow him, but he didn't need to. So what changes as the game goes on? Maybe it's the refs trying to cut him a break. Maybe they realize that they shouldn't have thrown the first flag, but that, yeah, the, first, the, the fourth down call... That was one of the most egregious examples I've seen from Tom Brady, and he does it all the time. Thank you! All the time. It's been going on for years. If you've watched more than one game against the Patriots, you realize as soon as he turns around, and I think he did on this play, it's a, it's a play-action pass. As soon as, as soon as he turns around from the fake, he sees the D end in his face. in his face. He doesn't, it's a no-look pass. That's it. Into the dirt. Except instead of being Patrick Mahomes, he's fucking just throwing the ball into the dirt, and there's no flag. This is my point. For everybody angry about the hit on Josh Allen, I'll leave it to smarter people than me to try to debate what the actual rule is versus what how it should have been called, what might have been called. At the end of the day, there are if you want to point to the Patriots being favored by officials, there are far more egregious examples than that. Okay, there are far that exist within almost every single Patriots game. For me, the kid from Portugal sitting next to me kept grabbing my jersey going why isn't that intentional grounding? And I said, Hugo, I don't know. I shrugged and just said, the New England Patriots. That's it. That's all I have to tell you. I don't have a good answer for you. Oh, but therein you have it. That was the football game. And that's how it went. Now, as we do every week, we have to anoint a hero in zero. Who was your hero of the game? Matt. Um, I think like we talked about a couple, so I'll go with something different. And I think that uh, Jordan Phillips was awesome. I thought that he really set the tone inside. Um, I think Ed Oliver had a, a nice game. Uh, and there was a few plays where I thought that he really got after uh, Tom Brady. I think there was one play where he came around the, uh, I think it was the tackle or the guard that got kind of lost in space. And he was this close. If Tom Brady held onto it for another split second, it would have been a sack. But I thought Jordan Phillips was... He was the kind of the unsung guy of, of the offseason. They, they signed him on the one-year prove-it deal. They drafted out Ed Oliver, and he kind of immediately fell into the background. But I thought that a lot of what he did, he, he's playing a lot of one technique and three technique. He's being asked to do kind of everything on the defensive line. Ed Oliver is two to a degree at times, but Jordan Phillips is playing at a really high level, and I think that his stability has allowed uh, Ed Oliver to go out there and play a little bit freer because – Jordan Phillips is playing so well. I did notice Jordan Phillips a lot when I rewatched the game. And you know what? I'll, I'll give you that one because I, I had a hard time coming up with a hero of the game. But with that said, it wasn't hard for me to come up with my zero of the game. Oh, it wasn't difficult at all. And that award this week goes to wide receiver Zay Jones. <laughs> wow, you suck at this. <laughs> I had a hilarious argument with the guys from Cover One this morning. I don't think that Zay Jones is quote-unquote trash. He's a perfectly rosterable player in the NFL. With that said, I'd be hard-pressed to find somebody who I was angrier with. 
walking away from this and rewatching it didn't change my opinion any. Eight targets, two catches for four yards. I went to pro, pro football reference in an attempt to see where that production stacked up against other players who had eight targets this week. I couldn't even get them on the same spreadsheet because his yardage total was 209th amongst all players in the NFL. That's wide receivers, tight ends, running backs, and offensive linemen who accidentally caught a tipped ball. He ranked behind all of them. And yet you gave that guy eight of your opportunities to pass the ball. He took up eight of your chances to move the ball through the air. And the result was four yards, multiple interceptions, one of which, the one in the end zone, I absolutely blame him for. If you are an NFL wide receiver and the ball hits your hands, if you're not going to catch it, the last thing you do, they teach you this as a rookie, do not volleyball this thing. They teach you that in high school. Are you talking about the one in the fourth quarter from Barkley? Yes. That was an interception, though. Okay. I'm just saying. Okay. (laughs) We can debate this to the ends of the earth. From the lack of overall production to his hands, which when he's not dropping the ball, he's deflecting it to somebody else around him. Zay Jones was the anti-goat. If Tom Brady is the goat on the field, Zay Jones is at the opposite end of the spectrum from him. Taug? I don't know. I don't know what you want to call him. At this point, you have to wonder two things. One, if this continues, at what point do you have to be concerned that he's lost the trust of his offensive coordinator and his quarterbacks? Because ultimately, that's, that's going to hurt our offense as a whole. Never mind his future. Never mind what it means for the roster as a whole. Roster moves. You know, I heard a lot of people talk about Duke Williams. Never mind that. What happens when he's out there taking up eight more targets? Or at least he's out there running plenty of routes. He's getting runs. I mean, Matt talked about a split with uh, him and Cole Beasley should be sharing the responsibility in the slot. What does it mean, though, when you have an offensive coordinator and a quarterback who just don't trust him to do that? Now you've got a guy on your roster who just, even if he could produce, eventually you do lose that. I mean, it's like any other sport. There's a little overreaction, and I I can tell you're emotional about this, but... That's right, all emotion over here at the Rock Pile Report. They they beat Cincinnati twenty-one to seventeen. They don't score one of those touchdowns without that third down conversion that Dane Jones oh, caught over the middle. Come on, Drew, Drew. <laughs> it's not as bad as you're painting it. And I'm telling you right now, being in a lock, NFL locker room now for going on a year and a half, there is something to be said for synergy amongst fifty-three people with a coaching staff. And right now, that just isn't there with Zay Jones. He ended last year as the guy, the leading receiver, top in touchdowns, top in receptions, and then you go into the offseason, go into your third year, which that second to third year jump for wide receivers is a big one. That's usually when you see him, that receiver really come into their own. And what do they do? They go out and they sign John Brown, Cole Beasley, rightfully so. They needed to fix this offense. But his role completely changed. And I guarantee you, I don't have the stat off the top of my head, what do you think the percentage is of, of, of routes that he ran last year out of the slot? Zay Jones. 60 percent i'm not going to take a stab at it because i don't know i i would say it's 60 to 70 percent i i would i would say that it's that so now he's not doing that almost at all he's working almost solely outside which i just don't think that that's where his skill set lies listen he was bad yesterday the effort isn't there and i think that he should be held accountable for that if you are not bringing the effort if you're not bringing the the care for your job and your team. You should be held accountable. But there's contributing factors. And again, 
He, what are they on the line for? He's a he's a third year receiver. They're not paying him any money. That's listen. That doesn't mean I can't be mad at him. Okay. All right, but I can also- still love people. It's like I tell my wife all the time, or even some of my best friends. I love you, but right now I'm fucking angry, and I'm not going to let it go. So, with that said. That brings us, because we got to wrap this up. I mean, this has been a great conversation about this game, which I do think, for as many people out there who don't want to call it a measuring stick, it is, and it has been. There's some final thoughts here that you have to take away from this. Now, Chris, we're going to go around the table here. Chris, real quick, 30 seconds to a minute. Final thoughts, what did you walk away from this, Dan? Feeling. Just feeling as a fan. Uh, You know, it's what I'm used to. Patriots win, and you need therapy. (laughs) That's it. Matt, what do you got for me? That was succinct. I think that game is that Josh Allen needs to figure out a way to elevate his confidence level going into big moments. And let's be honest, Ben, ben Roethlisberger threw 50, under 50% against this team in week one. This is a bad performance, but it's one of four. He's not going to face a secondary this good, although I will say Tennessee's secondary Tennessee's is pretty good pretty next good. week. We're going to talk about that here in a but, second. I think the the overreaction, I understand it because there was so much put into this game. And, you know, the, the players tried to warn everybody. Lorenzo Alexander, Deion Dawkins both said it. This isn't a make-or-break game. But I also think at the same time, if you say something like that, it's almost like, well, you know, if we lose, we lose. But I think at the end of the day, you have to be happy with 3-1 and one because I don't think you anybody would have said that with a, a significant level of confidence before the season started. I've come a long way. Come a long way in the last 48 hours, and maybe it's just the fact that I'm, like, what, five, six beers deep at this point. I, Anna Seagram's. Anna Seagram's. Thank you. I've had some time to decompress. And what I think is this. We just went toe-to-toe with the best team in our division. Bo- block out everything else right now. Okay? Everything else, throw it out the window. How, what, Chris, what's the road to making the playoffs? Com- being co- highly competitive in your own division before you can worry about what anybody else does. Sunday for me, when you look back at it, I remember thinking on Monday going into this, we're a seven-point underdog. If we can find a way to win this game, obviously it's going to set the world on fire. I'm going to drink a case of beer that day. I'm going to moon my neighbor. It's going to be great. If we lose... But the team looks good in losing, or at least gives me something to gives me something to work with in losing a game that we should lose. We should expect to lose at this point, being having seen almost a decade of this rivalry. Then you can't be that upset about it, especially if they leave you walking away with some level of confidence. And I said that to myself on Friday. I said it to myself on Saturday. It's obviously not what I was thinking when I walked out of the stadium on Sunday, but I'm here again looking at it, and I'm not the only person who thinks that. The national media is still on the Bills' hype bus, as we found out today from Colin Cowherd. Uh, I don't, I don't move the Buffalo Bills down at all. I think they're real. I think they're listen. They're second in total defense. Tom Brady had one of his worst games as a pro. Uh, the the Patriots couldn't throw on him. The Patriots couldn't run on him. Thank God New England got a special teams touchdown. He held the Patriots to 224 yards. And it, it's Tom was 18 of 39. Now, Tom's a precision thrower. Now, I do think there's some limitations offensively with Josh Allen. He can be wild. He can be a little inconsistent. He can be a little erratic. But they did run the football against New England. 
So the upgraded offensive line, I have the Bills at seven. Colin Cowherd, the herd on Fox Sports Radio and FS1. I got to say, I got to give you some credit. Because he said before that whole segment started, 30 to 60 seconds, you went in like five seconds. He was talking for like two minutes. When oh, got I to took him. all of his time. That's, you know, I give you credit. You put up with a lot stuff. around here, Chris. Oh, yeah. I just want to tap you on the back a little bit. Ultimately, yes. if the national media isn't jumping off a bridge when it comes to the Buffalo Bills being fake, then we as fans can't be the first ones. We can't be the first ones to line up at the Peace Bridge and throw ourselves into the river simply because we had a bad game offensively and yet still almost won against what is arguably still one of the best teams in the NFL. Or calling for or calling for Matt Barkley, stop doing that. Oh, my God. He I'll, is a great – I, I got to tell you, I, I've been impressed with how good he is as a backup. He's, he's real even keeled the way he came in against the Jets. Great stuff. He's not a starting caliber NFL quarterback, and you will see that next week if he has to play against Tennessee. I'm telling you that right now. But for those of you out there who don't believe that it could be worse, this is the first time all season that we've gotten introduced to this segment. People who have it worse than the Buffalo Bills, the week four edition. Things could be worse. It's my new segment. The drought is bad, but things could be worse. There is a ship infested with cannibal rats floating in the North Atlantic. It is heading straight for Britain. (laughs) Things can always be worse, especially if you're quarterback Deshaun Watson. Imagine interviewing for a job and asking what happened to your predecessors and finding out that they were bludgeoned by the company's organizational incompetence to such a degree that they all inevitably changed careers. Wouldn't that make you nervous about taking the job? And once you had it, maybe you might consider quitting it? What if it was already too late? I feel like that's what had to be going through Deshaun Watson's head as he's sitting in the ice bath on Sunday night. (laughs) They lose to Carolina, despite making one of the dumbest trades in NFL history, I think, in Houston trading multiple first-round draft picks for left tackle Laramie Tunsil, who was going to be their answer to the pressure facing quarterback Deshaun Watson. The Texans gave up six more sacks to the Panthers in a single game, making them third in the NFL in sacks allowed, and making Watson the NFL's most contacted quarterback just one season after he almost broke the record for most hits taken in a single season. To put that in perspective, we as Bills fans complain about Josh Allen taking unnecessary contact. Imagine being the quarterback who's trying to do the right thing by just standing in the pocket, letting his protection figure it out for him, and he's somehow being battered more frequently than the guy running around crashing headfirst into people. In just one and a quarter seasons, his career sack numbers already have him ranked 169th all time. That's ahead of quarterbacks like Mark Rippon, He's just nine sacks away from tying J.P. Lossman's entire career sack total. J.P. Lossman played for years, and in one and a quarter seasons, he's almost sacked as many times as that guy. I feel bad for him. Hopefully he doesn't end up as David Carr 2.0, because that's where this whole thing is trending. And if you're a Houston fan, that sucks. And new head coaches in the NFL. Chris, do you remember all of the uh, off-season buzz about the quote-unquote offensive guru head coach, the youth movement, the teams went with this off-season hiring their lead man? 
Yeah, everybody wants to find the next Sean McVay. That's the that's the new norm in the NFL. Got to get the next Sean McVay. Okay. So we're at the first quarter poll of the NFL season. <laughs> this movement has been met with what I consider the equivalent of those fart noises you make with your hands and your face as a kid. For the first time in NFL history, that's 100 years of the league existing, four rookie head coaches have reached the the first four weeks of the season and are still out there trying to find their first win. Like Ray Charles and Stevie Wonder playing hide and seek. This is fucking ridiculous. Thank God for Cliff Kingsbury's tie. Because if it wasn't for that, the you take, uh, well, what is it? Cliff Kingsbury, Zach Taylor, Brian Flores, and Vic Fangio. They are 0-15-1. Matt, head coaching. New head coaching. How bad is that? If you're one of these, if you're a fan of one of these franchises and you're watching your new head coach, Kingsbury was, he was almost a celebrity during the offseason because of, oh, he knows, a, look at this mesh concept he's going to run and look at how he's going to revolutionize NFL offense with this dynamic new quarterback of his. Kingsbury got fired from his last job. He failed forward. How, how are we forgetting about that? He's like the Kramer of NFL coaching. Somehow he fails forward on a routine basis. Until he, until he reaches the NFL. I don't know too many geniuses that came in getting fired from their last job. <laughs> here, here it is, though. As bad as things are for all four of those fan bases, would you rather be any of those situations or the New York Jets with Adam Gase? Because that is a tire fire. I almost threw that, him into this conversation. I could have predicted that, by the way. I almost threw him into this conversation. But if you just take a look at the new, quote-unquote, offensive minds that were hired this offseason... They currently rank 25th, 30th, and 31st in points scored. That's crazy. Even to the point where the biggest Bills pessimist out there has to look at that and say, Jesus Christ, at least, at least that's not my team. Well, you know, uh, reading all these head coaches that you have listed here, Cliff Kingsbury, Zach Taylor, Brian Flores, Vic Fangio, left Adam Gase off there. Uh, outside of Cliff Kingsbury, we play all of them. <laughs> we play all of them. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Bring them on. And that's and Chris talking about Adam Gase. That's a good point. That's a great place to start with this week's AFC East roundup, Week Four edition. The New York Jets were on a bye, and I know that it's kind of cliched to talk about a team losing on the bye week, but things didn't get better for the Jets. They came off their bye. Now they started zero and three. They're staring an zero and four start directly in the face. Linebacker C.J. Mosley still is not practicing. He's not practicing with the team. Neither is quarterback Sam Darnold, which leaves them to take on the Eagles, fresh off a win on the road against Green Bay and a Hall of Fame quarterback. With a third-string quarterback, a questionable offensive approach, and a coach who looks like he could be having a seizure at any given moment. I, I don't know what's happening over there. Throw in the fact that now they're starting to talk about shuffling the offensive line completely because they don't have any answers up front, which, which flies directly in the face of the value of their priority free agent, Le'Veon Bell. This is a disaster coming out of New Jersey. Things aren't getting any better anytime soon. The smile on your face when you say this is huge. <laughs> it's, it's, it's embarrassing listen, how a, happy you are about this. I'm a petty motherfucker. Okay, I'll take those. I'll take those ribbed for her condoms and turn them inside out. That's how petty I am. 
Okay? I don't give a shit. I enjoy all of this, and that's why we talk about it every year. I don't think that would be enjoyable for you, though. I think the, the best part of that's how petty. The best part about the Jets' bye week was that quote I tweeted out from Joe Benino at WFAN that the uh, the bye is three point favorites over the Jets. <laughs> well, but but even they are dwarfed in comparison to the futility going on down in Miami. Where the, the, the Miami? Oh, that poor Miami Dolphin fan. Fan. <laughs> this historic the one guy who's they, actually into it. They lost to the Chargers thirty to ten. I mean, this, this is a historic plummet to the bottom of the NFL standings. And it continued when they hosted the Chargers. And they hung more than 25 points, as every team they've played so far this season has. Look at the bright side. At least they led in that game. They hadn't done that all season. The Chargers sacked Josh Rosen five times, forced three fumbles, demolished any sort of a game plan the Dolphins came in with to win on offense. I mean, the Dolphins tried. They, they said, okay, this game, we're just going to air shit out. Who cares? Throw it downfield as far as you can. Maybe we get lucky, some PI calls, maybe some blown coverages. Instead, they sucked on offense. Rivers shredded their defense to the tune of 310 and a 131 quarterback rating. I mean, it's just six different players had catches of more than 15 yards. I don't even think the Bills have six offensive weapons capable of catching that many yards. That would be like Lee Smith being out there catching a 25-yard pass. That shouldn't be something that happens if you're an NFL football team. Do negative yards count for Lee Smith? Oh, God. That, I, that was my zero, by the way. Ah, your least, oh, see, the Lee Smith shade is real. I, I hate to bring this back up, but y'all missed over something with the zeros. Can we talk for a second about Sean McDermott's timeout management? No, because my head will fucking explode. I talked. I, I I made up my mind about things I could and couldn't talk about with getting without getting violent here in the kitchen. That's one of them. Okay, I'll chew the neck off this fucking bottle. It <laughs> Chris's eyes just got huge. Oh God, the Finns they've got problems. Okay, they're number one in quarterback hits allowed, second in sacks. They've run, they have two runs of more than 10 yards through four games. That's not an offense that can bail them out of the tire fire their defense is. And this is going to be a long season for them. I mean, they're going into the bye week and they're going to try to find answers. Come on now. You'd have, you would have, you're married, you're married, I'm married. You would have better luck trying to explain the intricacies of the female mind than the Miami Dolphins will have trying to find answers to their shitty football team in a single week. That's it. They'll find it in a single week, but it'll be the week of the 2020 draft. (laughs) That's fair. And so with that, we're going to close this show with our week five preview. The Buffalo Bills versus the Tennessee Titans. The time, 1 p.m. Eastern Standard. The place, Nissan Stadium down in Tennessee. Chris? Did not find anybody yet of who's calling the game. So I don't care. Spiros Didos or whatever his name uh, is. Spiro Didos, my man. He's I calling love the game? this guy. Chris, this is an omen. And He's Adam Archuleta. That's, that's oh, name. fuck Adam Archuleta. <laughs> Give me all the Spiro Didos. Just inject, inject it right into my veins. I love that guy. Chris, this is a good omen for us. This game is big. If you want to talk about the implications really of this big. game. Not just because I hate the Titans. I mean, all that Music City Miracle nonsense. That actually affected and shaped my childhood. That's how traumatic that was. Okay, so I'm 34 years old. I was 12, 13 when that game happened. 
And I, I will never forget this because it was my first introduction to the fact that life isn't fair. We watched the play happen. And I look at my father and I go, well, they got to call that back, right? They're wrong. They're wrong. They have to fix it. I mean, they have to get it right, right? And my father got up and he shut the TV off and just quietly walked down the hallway to the bedroom and closed his bedroom door. And I'm left alone out in the living room just going, I'm going to keep watching the broadcast because they have to come back and fix this. And then the post-game show started. And I still kept thinking, they're going to fix this. At some point, they have to make this right. And after about a half hour, I got up and I went outside and I had a hockey stick. And I was just firing rocks off the side of the house. I was crying. And I was so angry. I'm just like, what? But they were wrong. And it was my first introduction to the fact that life just isn't fair sometimes. That's it. That's the moment that I realized you are going to get shit on sometimes. And there is nothing you can do about it. But I've moved on. I guess I haven't. <laughs> just listening to this in my Yeah, head. you seem, you seem yeah, like Yeah, I seem like on. a man who's moved on. The dents are still on the side of your house. But the bills are at a crossroads right now. Because right now you're still three and one. Like we were talking about in our final thoughts. It's not that we're not out of this. One loss doesn't change your season. To your point, Matt, the players seem pretty nonplussed. They were like, listen, this is a game. It's a game against a good team, but we're not worried about it like it's the end of the world. Because it's not. It's a long season, and you've got a lot of other games you've got to win. You can't focus on just one to make or break your season. But this is an important one in the sense that it's all about momentum. You were the 3-0 team who had a chance to go 4-0. You lost a game. You lost your quarterback in that game. You not, But you have an elite defense. You've got some things to work with. But you have to maintain that because there is a slew. I think right now, Matt, if I'm not mistaken, seven teams with a 2-2 two two record in the AFC – if you don't win this week, you risk falling back into the middle of the pack with everybody else, and that's where things get dicey. Because we do have a favorable schedule over the course of the next few months, but you got to win this one and get into the bye week and get your quarterback back before you can even think about what's coming next. It's only favorable until Cleveland, and then it's not very favorable. Like at Cleveland, at Pittsburgh, despite them being a shell of what they were, is a tough game. At Dallas on Thanksgiving, at New England again. That's true. Those potentially are four losses. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, okay. that could happen, especially if they're reeling in, at that Pittsburgh game, you know, and, and they need those, those wins down the stretch. You could look back at this game as being one of those prototypical Buffalo, like, it, we should have won that game. It's the momentum game. It's, if we want to maintain any kind of direction for this season, you go out there and you find a way to win this football game. So it is. It really is a very important game, even though it seems like a throwaway when we looked at the schedule a month and a half ago. So with that, I take a look at the offense of the uh, Titans, and honestly, they are who they who, who you'd think they were at a first glance. Anybody who's watched them play over the last two years, you know what type of attack to bring to the table. Run the ball to set up the pass. You try to protect Marcus Mariota from himself and from the pass rush because their offensive line hasn't been great. And they run a vertical offense off of that running attack. Now, they'll even run out of the 11 personnel a lot. You know, they'll put three wide receivers out there in hopes of getting an extra linebacker off the field because they know Derrick Henry's a battering ram. That's the lifeblood of their entire offense. And through the first few weeks of the season, I, until this past, 
they weren't, you know, you wonder why they're two and two. It's because that rushing attack wasn't completely able to take all of the pressure off. This week, no running back had over 90 yards in a game. Now, you could say the same thing about the Bills, but as a team, we rushed well. When you look at that, the brunt of the heavy lifting has fallen on Mariota, and he's had a rough start to the season. Okay? He's not good. No, he, no, you yeah, can. Real simple explanation there. He's just not good at the football. But you can make that argument. You look at it. Most of his passes, over 80% of them, have been less than 10 yards down the field, which is below average for a starting quarterback in the NFL. And as a team, you're not ranked very highly in scoring. Why? Because your quarterback can't move the football in pivotal situations. Now, Sunday, things finally clicked for him against the Falcons. They took the air out of the ball, but the result was that by forcing the Falcons' front seven to commit to the run, it allowed wide receiver A.J. Brown to get out behind them. The guy only had three catches on three targets, but those went for games of 55, 11, and 48. Two of them for touchdowns. Can I put in a note about A.J. Brown? Sure. That first touchdown catch was an absolute joke. The the Falcons' secondary is a joke. I don't know what that cornerback was doing on the route to let him get that open in the first place, and then he completely whiffed on, on the play. <laughs> he, he shifts it back upfield, and he, he runs untouched, and the sa- safety wasn't doing anything either. A.J. Brown may not have a catch next week going up against this bill second there. But when you think about how they're designed, it's telling that that's the marquee performance by a wide receiver from Tennessee this season. Three catches that just turned into dynamite plays because of bad tackling. That's how poor their passing offense is. So the games that they've won, it's been driven by the fact that teams were so concerned with stopping the run, they stopped protecting the pass. And that's what opened everything up for disaster. Now, one of the things they have working against them on that side of the ball, besides their offensive, the running game not being able to click, is their offensive line. Heading into week four, here's, Dubious doesn't even do it justice when you look at the stats their offensive line put up the first four weeks, or three weeks. They were first in sacks allowed. Now they've been eclipsed by Houston. God help Deshaun Watson. Second in quarterback hits. In week three against Jacksonville, Mariota was he was pressured 18 times, which was a career high. They gave up nine sacks. You gave up nine sacks in a football game. You got sacked more times than you put points up on the scoreboard. Their left tackle shouldn't be in the NFL. Taylor Lewan comes back this week. Well, and that's it. And up until last week against the Falcons and their depleted front seven... They hadn't had a game where they didn't allow a sack. So all that talk about Watson getting beat up, Mariota is tied with him for sack percentage per pass attempt. It's not good. It seems like what you're setting up here is that we don't need to worry about Tennessee this weekend. Now, it's a trap game. It's a trap game. without Josh Allen. I get that. But this defense is not the Atlanta defense. Our secondary is not the Atlanta secondary. I'm not worried. ESPN has a metric. For those of you out there, they call, ESPN has a metric. Pass rush win rate. And that's how they evaluate how offensive linemen do in one-on-one situations. Because I'm not done shitting on this offensive line. <laughs> According to the site, the NFL average is 91%. So when you take that metric and apply it across the Titans' offensive line, going into last weekend... Now, to your point, Taylor Lewan is a much better left tackle, and he will be back for the game. But you'd think that that guy would have struggled. Not the case. Not the case. From So, so if I'm going to take this across the formation, 
it's it's embarrassing from the center to the left guard Roger Saffold who's a veteran this right tackle Jamil Douglas the interior portion of the line all the way over to the right tackle spot below NFL average their left tackle the guy that Matt just said doesn't belong in the NFL the highest rated guy in one-on-one reps and one-on-one situations Matt, how does that have you feeling if you're a Tennessee fan? He got blown up. Like, on three plays, I just watched the condensed game real quick uh, this morning to get ready for Tennessee. And their offensive line, it's all right. Like, I don't think it's as bad as you seem to think. <laughs> but it's but as a unit, they do not work well. Yes. But I think that there is some continuity on the interior. Uh, I think... The matchups again at Ed Oliver, Jordan Phillips will be interesting to watch. And I think that Taylor Lewan changes the dynamic. I'm, I'm trying to see real quick. Let me just bring this well, up. Let, let me bring this up while you're researching this. You're talking about a left tackle changing the dynamic. This team is 15th in yards per carry at 4.3. Lower than nine teams with fewer rushing attempts than they have. And even though last week they won the game... And Derrick Henry got his first 100-yard rushing game of the season. It took them, they had 138 yards, which is a season high. It took them 34 attempts to get to that total. So really, they're still averaging 4.1 yards per carry. Their efficiency isn't very good. Henry ran for 5.1 a carry against the Bills last year. The mm-hmm. Bills didn't have, they only had one sack against this this team last season. And Marcus Mariotti played absolutely terrible. It was it was actually a, a, the game of two terrible quarterbacks because Josh Allen, that was one of his worst games of the season last year. I remember. And he still won. I remember being on the edge of my seat when that field goal went up, and I'm like, oh, my God, if you miss this. Were you on the edge of your seat because you were so excited to get the hell out of that stadium so you could stop watching that football game? <laughs> kind or, of. Okay. Kind of. Because I was. I was in the press box like, what am I going to even ask these guys about afterwards? Like, this <laughs> this was just absolutely, like, just forgettable football. But, no, I think that uh, the, a couple of things are in play here. Number one. Going on the road in this league is tough. If you're going on the road in this league with Matt Barkley as your starting quarterback, it's even more difficult. And that's going to put the pressure more so on this defense to not only turn the ball over, but potentially score with some of those turnovers. One bright spot also from that Patriots game, I thought Andre Roberts looked really good. I think he's just he's just itching to break one. And I'd actually like to see him get a little bit more involved in the offense. You talk about Zay Jones seeing a little bit less of him. Mm-hmm. Let's see maybe a little bit more of Andre Roberts because – that's one thing that stuck out to me about Brian Dable last year is he said, we want guys with speed on this offense. And Andre Roberts, if you get the ball in his hands. Well, what about Isaiah McKenzie? Again, a guy who he didn't was dinged. Kill. He was dinged. I know. That ankles. But my point is is that there's speed here if you want to utilize it that way. Now, For sure. Maybe, now, maybe this is something that they, you're, to your point, that they bring into this, bring into this game against the Titans. They're going to have to get creative because when you look at what the Titans are bringing to the table on defense – their record is not indicative of how good their defense actually can be. They're pretty similar to Buffalo. They're kind of like that bend, don't break. They like want you to have to drive 12, 15 plays to get touchdown, and usually you'll make a mistake, especially with Matt Barkley. They have an opportunistic secondary, and here's the thing. When you look at, the, if you're just box score watching, you look at their overall rankings and you say, okay, this is a middle-of-the-road defense. They're 14th in passing yards per game, and they're 15th in rushing yards per game. Literally middle of the pack. But then there's a few metrics that stick out to you that don't bode well for the potentially Josh Allenless Bills. They're sixth in interceptions right now, and they're seventh in first downs allowed. So they have one. They have the seventh best third down completion percentage. That 
that's not good for a team that's trying to start a backup quarterback and might be without some of its speed options like Isaiah McKenzie. Now, the story of this game for the Buffalo Bills offense is going to be slow, methodical football. It's all going to come down to either Frank Gore or Devin Singletary if he can come back from that hamstring injury this week. Because Matt Barkley is not going to get it done. Now, Matt, our guy behind the scenes here, Mr. Press Pass himself, what do you know about Singletary's availability coming into this game? He'll be back. McDermott said, That's what I like to hear. McDermott said yesterday that he was this close to playing last week, and I think it was just more being on the safe side. Uh, he, he, was, he looked like he was pretty – I think he'll be a full participant in practice before the week's out. See, now, that right there, people want to badger Sean McDermott for poor coaching. I'd argue this. I think that the decision to keep Singletary out of that game when he was borderline speaks to a coach who's composed enough to think, hey, I see the big picture. Previous Bills head coaches, we've watched them rush out players who were quote-unquote playmakers. They did it to LaShawn McCoy last season. They put him on the field when he wasn't ready. They did it in the playoff game against the Jaguars. And luckily for him, that pain injection, whatever he took, it worked until it didn't. Late in the game when he started to tighten up and that's when he stopped being effective. I think that it was a pragmatic and kind of a shrewd move by a coach who's looking at this and saying, we're going to need Singletary for the long haul. I'm not going to jeopardize him for one game because I think that we can figure something out versus jeopardizing a guy who's going to be a key to our offense if we want to maintain balance. So with that, maintaining balance, that's where we start this week's Keys to Victory. Wow, it's a lot of keys. Bigger the keychain, more powerful the man. One of the things that this offense is going to have to do if it wants to win this week, okay, there's an interesting... Now, Chris, you're looking at the notes that I sent you, and there's a chart there, as I like to do. I like to tuck... I like to make charts. I like to graph things. I like to look at the numbers. Chris... The feature, the tight end, and the passing attack chart. So what I'm looking at right now is a chart of the tight end production against the Titans over the course of the last four weeks. We have... Potentially, and Matt, maybe you can shed some light on this. Tyler Croft and his availability. Where are we with that? Uh, he was limping around the locker room on Friday. Okay. So I think it's you're probably a couple weeks away okay. from just practice. But you have Dawson Knox. Dawson Knox has been, he's been, I want to say kind of a godsend in terms of tight end production because we found him out of, he came out of nowhere Here's, when we needed a body. Sometimes football team construction just happens in weird ways. Like, they go out and they draft Tommy Sweeney and Dawson Knox after they sign Tyler Croft to a three-year deal, which, by the way, they can get out of after this year. Yes. But Tyler, Tommy Sweeney is a rookie version of Tyler Croft. Yes. Let's be honest. He does everything. Nothing's super great, but he's well-rounded. And I'll tell you right now, the spot that he got put in in the, in the summer with Dawson Knox out of the picture and it was Croft, hard. it was hard, and he looked great. So I want to see more of Tommy Sweeney, just like I want to see – Dawson Knox featured, and I'll tell you right now, Dawson Knox is a much better blocker than I thought. I really think you could start to limit Lee Smith's uh, You could start snaps. to roll two tight ends out there who are pretty athletic, who have both proven they can produce in the passing game when given the opportunity. And that's going to be big against this Titans defense because we just talked about how they're, they're, they're pretty good when it comes to, I mean, you, to your point, Jarrell Casey is one of the better D-tackles in this NFL. Our offensive line, we just got done badgering them for their poor performance and pass protection. A tight end is always a quarterback safety valve. That's, that's one of their functions in the passing attack. To know that we have three of them now, with Sweeney, with, I mean, Lee Smith is your blocking specialist, but that we have Sweeney and that we have Knox, 
When I look at the production that tight ends have put up against these Titans, Cleveland, six targets, four completions, 37 yards and a touch. Against Indy, seven targets, five completions, 46 yards and a touchdown. Week three against Jacksonville, five, five targets, three completions, 26 yards and a touchdown. And then against the Falcons, when nothing was working for the Falcons in offense, 12 targets to the tight end position, nine completions, 130 yards. They've proven over the course of four weeks that for whatever reason, their defensive front is solid. Their linebackers can sometimes get so caught up in that that there is a ton of room to operate behind them. And that's where our... If you're a good offensive coordinator and you're trying to win this football game with a quarterback like Matt Barkley, you're going to give him tight end routes over the middle of the field. They've proven that they can't keep these tight ends out of the end zone. And even when they do, they're still giving up a ton of real estate to them. That's something you have to try to take advantage of. So you're telling me that next week there's a high chance that you could be drinking another Uh, Seagram's. Yes. If Dawson Knox goes off, I will be here on the show drinking another Seagram's. That bet is. Wait, wait. You have to drink a seat. You're saying that you think Dawson Knox will go off, aren't you? We have a bet from our post draft show with Nate Geary. Uh, I said, because uh, he did not like the Dawson Knox pick at all. So I said, any time that you make Dawson Knox the hero of the game, you drink his Seagrams. Anytime he's the loser of the game, I'll drink his Seagrams. And that goes for his entire career as a Buffalo Bill. Wow. Yeah, you get me. You, you get me loaded. You can get me to agree to a lot of stuff. You might be in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> so, with that said, I feel like that's one of the keys to winning this football game is to find ways, find ways to prioritize the tight end usage because this is a team that's proven they're susceptible to it. The second key to victory for me is that this offensive line has got to get its shit together fast. Okay, Jarrell Casey, Matt. A lot of people out there don't know who Jarrell Casey is. They don't even know the name. He is one of the better interior defensive linemen in the NFL. And what is he? He's in his third year, fourth year? Yeah, about that. He's still on a rookie contract. They have a defensive line that's proven it can be disruptive. Okay, they get in there. They force bad throws. They, that's, why they, that's why they're sixth in interceptions. They force a lot of negative plays from the quarterback. Something we just watched crucify Josh Allen in this game and cost us a win. So with that said... Our offensive line has to find better protection. Where do you think it starts, and how do you think they can do it? I mean, I already said it, but it it starts at Mitch Morse, and he's got to be more um, effective and consistent in in the middle because I feel like everybody kind of takes their um, their cues from him. He's you know he's the leader. He's the he was the guy that when he was signed, everybody was talking about how good he was in pass protection for Patrick Mahomes through four games. I'm like, well, wait, what? He's giving up a lot of pressure. A lot of pressure, and he, you know, some penalties, some untimely penalties, and Joe Biscaglia put out a nice tweet today about the Zay Jones interception that on the play before, if if Mitch Morris doesn't blow his assignment, who knows what happens on that play. They might run for a a first down and be a different situation. So, uh, also, I really think that it's a hard situation that's happening at right tackle right now because I think that Cody Ford is playing out of necessity. I don't think... Titans and Seki's healthy. I don't think he can play a full game, and that's why they're having to go with Ford at right tackle. Combined with the fact that Feliciano's played much better than anybody could have ever predicted, mm-hmm. and, and they like that, and they like what he brings from a mentality. We talked about that last time. Mm-hmm. And so, but I think that Cody Ford right now is just inept 
as a as a pass protector whenever he's getting speed rushed. And unfortunately, that's going to be a big problem. That's going to be a huge problem because his Bills fans will remember. Guess who's on the end rushing against right tackles? Cameron Wick. Cameron Wick, the guy who we talked about it ad nauseum, used to pull Jordan Mills' pants down on national television. I, I Jordan, guess Jordan Mills is still in the NFL. How Arizona Cardinals, baby? Oh Jesus, he's Christ. back. That's where he, he is belongs. back, and he is That's making some money. That's where he belongs, and it actually explains a lot about what's going on in Arizona. <laughs> But with that said, Cam Wake, the destroyer of so many Bills games, is back to haunt us with a right tackle who struggles against speed. One of the keys to this game is going to be our offensive coordinator figuring out ways, whether it's extra tight ends, chipping, whether it's Tommy Sweeney playing off of Cody Ford's shoulder for a majority of the game. I don't care what it takes. You cannot let our offensive line be the thing that ruins this football game and any kind of offensive continuity that we want to build. Yeah, the answer is run to the left every single play. <laughs> Just do it over and over again. <laughs> oh, And with that, I think the last thing, and it almost comes as a no-brainer, but continued discipline from Edmonds in the front seven. You said it when I was, I was talking about A.J. Brown's performance, how you don't think he's going to be able to replicate that against this team. I don't think so. If not... They still have Derrick Henry, who I watched play all of his college ball down in Alabama, and what I'll tell you is that dude, he's the hammer. And when you feed him, the problem with him is, is you can't just arm tackle this guy. You're, he's not Sony Michelle who's going to get tackled for a two-yard loss. He's going to make, he said it, I think he was on NFL Network talking about it. They asked him, do you think that linebackers and like cornerbacks especially make what they call quote-unquote uh wallet decisions when it comes to trying to tackle you. Do you think that they're they're thinking about their longevity when it comes to trying to tackle Derrick Henry coming out of the backfield with a head of steam? He's absolutely correct. The guy's 255 pounds. He's the same size as Tremaine Edmonds. It's on Edmonds in this front seven to make sure that he stays in check. Because if he doesn't and he gets into that secondary, it's going to take away from their effectiveness, which opens us up to those big plays that they used to ultimately beat the Falcons last week. I'd say that's absolutely true, but we have experience against Derrick Henry. He's not a rookie coming in out of nowhere. We handled him last year. That's the key fair. to victory here, don't overthink it. Make Mariota win this game for Tennessee. That's fair. Perino, what do you got for a key to victory? Make Mariota turn the ball over because he's going to do that against the secondary. This, this secondary is even better than it was when they played in week five last year. I think Levi Wallace wasn't, I don't, I don't think he was in yet. I think that was still Philip Gaines, correct? I have no, I have no idea on that. I'll, I'd have to look the, back. <laughs> no, Philip Gaines, I forgot he was even on the roster when you said his name. I was like, who? What? Yeah, so Levi Wallace is playing at a, at a super high level. Obviously, you have the, the safety combo and. I think even in coverage, like Kevin Johnson was really good in 22 snaps the other day. He is under the radar, awesome signing because he can play outside, inside. He's playing a bit of a slot uh, for Taron Johnson, who still can't get on the field. Man, that's that guy as talented as he is. What a what a tough story because it was the shoulder all year last year. Now it's the hamstring. I mean, these are different ailments, and it just seems like I just think because of his size, like he has to. To be effective in this league, he has to be so aggressive and so physical. 
and he, his body just isn't holding but up. Thank God we're chock full of safeties, which yes. I think also feeds into the success of our front seven against the run. And that's one of the things that's going to win us this football game. Saran Neal was great against the run. So with that week. said, predictions. We're going to go around the table. Chris, starts with you. What do you got? Well, you said, Matt, you were just saying a few minutes ago that it's going to, you know, it's always tough to win on the road. Now, you've only been, what, a member of the media, what, last year, yeah. right? Telling you it's a different animal down in Tennessee for Bills Mafia. You're three and a half hours from Atlanta, about four hours from Cincinnati, four and a half hours from St. Louis. You, I think you will be amazed at how, how much Bills Mafia shows out for this game. So I don't think the crowd is going to even be a factor at all in this game. It will be for Tennessee because we're going to be fucking loud and proud, but I don't see that there's a way that the Bills lose this game at all. What do you got for a score? I think it's going to be uh, 20 to 7, Buffalo. Wow. The ball's on this man. Jesus Christ. Get him a wheelbarrow. Matt, what do you, I like how you're just staring at Chris right now in disbelief. What do you got? So, yeah, this is one thing that I didn't do yet is get my, my head around a prediction. But I think. Well, if you do have one for later in the week, where can people go and find it? Hoo-hoo-hoo! At Matt Perino on Twitter. There you go. <laughs> uh, very nice. Segway Who there. knows how to segue? <laughs> And I can't host this shit. Yeah, it's only taking you five years. <laughs> I'd say we see a repeat of last Sunday. But with the Bills on top, I think it's going to be 16-10 Buffalo. Really? And I think Steven Hauschka is the key to actually winning this game. Get those field goals and we walk away with a victory. Steven Hauschka, key, key to victory. That's, that's all I, I'm sorry, that's all I can say. Um, in terms of my prediction. We beat them here in a game where Marcus Mariota was wildly ineffective as a quarterback. Watching his early performances, when he's at his best, it's because the opposing defense allows him to be such. It's not because he's overwhelmingly talented. It's not because the O-line is great and gives him a lot of time. It's not because the wide receivers are making ridiculous plays. It's because the defense allows it. And in that way... I think that this is, again, we talk about this being a crossroads game. This is going to tell us everything we need to know about the Buffalo Bills defense in 2019. Is this a defense that can rebound from a game where they played their hearts out and lost a heartbreaker to a divisional opponent, the, arguably the best team in football in their own house? Can they come back from that with the same intensity that they brought to that game? Because if they can, the Bills will absolutely run away with this game. If they can't, that's where this gets murky, especially when you're putting the offense on the shoulders of what is a backup quarterback in the NFL. So with that, I think the Bills win this, but it's not. I'm not as crazy as Chris over here. I think this is a winnable football game. I think this is a one-dimensional team whose quarterback is a liability. I think that if your defense goes out there and plays a game not even the same but similar to what they showed you last week against the Patriots – and their ability to shut down short area throwing and forces Mariota to go downfield. To Matt's point, there will be turnovers. And that's going to fuel the Bills to get their running game going. I think they can come out of this thing, but I think it's going to be a lot like last year. A field goal victory, it's going to be 20-17. to 20-14 to 14 even. But nonetheless, a field goal or two is what's going to seal it. And it makes me sick thinking about Hauschka being the guy that we're hinging all of our hopes on. If Josh Allen doesn't get hurt, this is completely off topic, but if Josh Allen doesn't get hurt, 
in that game, what's your confidence level that they win that game against the Patriots? I feel like they come back and win that thing. But if ifs and buts were candy and nuts, then we'd all have a merry fucking Christmas. So with that said, we are here at three and one. We're going into Tennessee to play the Titans. I believe that we will come out with a victory and that the Bills will carry some momentum into the bye week. I have to. For my own sanity, I have to believe that this is true. Guys, thank you so much for tuning in tonight. Tell the people, Matt, where they can find all your work. Say that again, butts and nuts. If ifs and buts were candy and nuts, then we'd all have a merry fucking Christmas. Why is why is everyone looking at me like I have three heads? I'm not I'm not looking at you like I'm <laughs> I'm just trying to commit it to memory for the next family party. That was pretty funny. Um at Matt Perino on Twitter, uh nyupsyracuse.com, all your Buffalo Bills content that your heart can desire. Uh we'll have you covered all week. And I'll actually be in Nashville Friday, uh hoping to get out to the uh Pinto Tailgate because they're doing a big one down there. Uh, remote. So hopefully we'll be able to check that out Sunday morning before the game. So I'll have some stuff on social media from there. All right. And uh, where does Drew go when he needs an attorney for DWI later tonight? <laughs> or if you have a Twitter account, just... Please, please. That's what no Uber's account. for. That's what Uber's for, folks. You know where you want to find this guy? And I'm not going to give the handle, but he's on Reddit. And he's on the Bills Reddit. And he run he he's very active on there. Let's just leave it there. And okay. so I'll play a guessing game and see if you can find uh, Mr. Attorney over here on Reddit. Yeah, exactly right. I don't have no Twitter handle, but I do spend a lot of time on Reddit. I won't give that secret away. Let your listeners try and find out who I am. Uh, but hey, yes, that's true. I am an attorney. You can find me at vitrolaw.com, eight five two one two three four. If you're hurt, it's not your fault, give us a call. And folks, if you need, and, and, and if you're wondering if you ran into him in public, he looks like Anna Paquin. With that said, we wow. have to fly away home, baby. What's fly what? away home. We got to get out of here, guys. Thank you so much for showing up for tonight's podcast. I'm Drew Gear. That's Chris Krueger. That's Matt Perino. I've got an attorney in the house. Let's go. This has been the Rock Ball Report. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.